Access Church is a, a new church. We're a daughter church of Trailhead that we're in the process of starting down in Troy. Um, we are um, just getting started right now. Our church is meeting once a month, and so next Sunday morning we're going to have our second preview service. Uh, so we would greatly appreciate if you'd be praying for us as we're in the process of, of reaching out, getting to know people in our community, and uh, building a church. And so we thank you all so much, Trailhead. Thank you so much for all the support you've given to us and uh, the prayers you've given us so far. And we really do um, appreciate and, and would covet more and more of those prayers as we go forward. If you've got a Bible this morning, uh, grab it and open it up to the book of Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to be looking this morning as we con- continue uh, this Advent series that, that Joe started last week. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one under the chair in front of you. And so if you want to grab that, we'll be on page 807 in the hardback Bible. And let's take a look. We're going to read Matthew starting chapter 2 in verse number 1. Let's read this together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. He was, uh, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country, by another way. The word of the Lord. So, um, seven weeks ago, um, my wife gave birth to uh, our, our daughter. It's our fourth child. So we now have this, this little baby girl at home. We're so excited. I mean, I love her so much. So incredible having a, a baby again. Our other kids are a little bit older, and so it's been, you know, it's been six years since we've had a baby and um, really exciting, really crazy. You know, I've got three other kids, and I feel like a first-time parent again um, when I'm holding her. But I'm looking at her, and something for me, and I don't know um, if, this is, if there's other parents here, if this is true for you, maybe this is just me, but there's something to me about holding a baby <laughs> makes me really introspective and really like almost get philosophical in a way because you're looking, and it's the beginning of life, and you just start, I just start thinking all these you know, very existential things about just life and the meaning of life and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and at Christmas time, and, and talking about Advent, and we're talking about the idea of, of God coming to earth 
and coming, and, and, and as, as Joe started last week, and he talked about this, this word um, that Matthew uses in chapter 1, and it says, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the idea of Christmas being that God is with us, and he came down, and he came to earth, but he came as a, as a baby, as a baby. And I'm looking at this little baby that I'm holding in my arms, and she's so helpless, and she so, feels so, so fragile, and so dependent upon me um, in, in so many ways. And to think, to look at this little, fragile, helpless baby, and to think, this is how, this is how God chose to come into our world. That God, in, in, in his grand plan, in his epic story of all of human history, that, that all of human history is this story of God who created this world, and then we, by our sin, we, we broke it, and he's restoring us to a relationship with him, and, and the crucial part, the turning point of that whole story is for him to enter into the world as a human, to take on human flesh, and he does it, and he comes, and he comes as a baby, as this little, fragile human being, that just blows me away. To, to think that, that God would come and he doesn't come with trumpets and he doesn't come with applause and he doesn't come with grandeur, but he comes and he comes as a little tiny baby. And, and I mean, setting, even just setting that aside, the idea that God would come down at all, that God who is perfect, the God who is holy, the God who created, like, uh, created the entire world and made it perfect. And we, as humans, are the ones who messed it up, who, who screwed the whole thing up, and that he would decide to come to us and to lower himself, to humble himself in human form and come down to us, is mind-blowing. So as we, throughout this month of December, as, as we're looking at, and the idea of Advent being that, that Christ has come, or we're looking forward to Christ's coming, and, and he's come, but he's coming again, and we're thinking about this idea of God being with us. If that's true, I mean, if it's, if it's really true, and I understand, listen, I understand, there's some of us here, some of you this morning, who just that very proposition. The idea that, that God became a human being. That Jesus, who we talk about as a historical figure, was more than just a man. He was more than just a wise teacher. That he was more than a prophet of some kind. That he was actually God in the flesh. That to some of you, that idea maybe to some of you that's a little too much. Maybe you're still just wrestling with that idea. But, but, but if it's true, if Jesus really is God in the flesh, come down to us, then that has major life-changing, earth-changing implications. That if God really has come down as a human being, then that's going to do something globally, but also individually. That if God really is here on earth, or really did come down to earth to be with us, then that's going to push on us in some way. This morning, as we look at this passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, what I want to do is look with you and see 
that the idea of God coming down and God being with us and God taking on flesh and God entering into our physical world pushes on people, and it pushes people in different directions. And as we look through um, this chapter, we're going to see two different directions that people get pushed by this idea of God being with us. And my goal for us this morning is kind of to, to let this, as we look at this story and as we look at how these different people reacted to God, I want this to be for us kind of like a self-diagnostic, to ask ourselves, in our hearts, when we think about the idea of God being with us, how does that push on us? Where does our heart go? How do we respond to the idea that God would enter in to our world? Do we respond in one of the ways similar to the people in this passage responded? And if so, what does that say about where we are spiritually? So let's take a look. There's two main groups of people or or two characters or however you want to phrase it that I see in this passage who are heavily impacted and heavily pushed on by this idea of Emmanuel, of God being with us. Um, The first one is King Herod. So it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So a little bit of background, have to understand the context here. Um, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Here's what we have to understand. Jesus was born to um, Jewish parents, and this was a Jewish area, Jewish region. However, Herod was not um, Jewish. Herod was a Roman ruler, because at this point in time, at this point in history, Judea and all of the Jewish people were under captivity by the Romans. And so the ruler was appointed by the Roman government, and so Herod had been appointed king of this region. And so he... um, he was the king, and he was not a real nice guy, okay, to, to understand a little bit about Herod. Herod was, as a king, so um, controlling and so concerned with his power and with being king that he went to extreme lengths to stay king. In fact, we know historically from other non-biblical sources that he even, he even had members of his own family killed because he felt like they threatened his rule as king. So Herod is king, And these people show up and tell him they're looking for the person who's been born to be the king of the Jews. And immediately Herod um, has a reaction that we might actually think seems somewhat understandable. If you're the king and somebody else shows up and says, hey, where's this new king? Your thought is going to be, I don't want there to be another king. I'm the king, right? Herod's like, there's no other king. I'm the king. I'm the ruler. For somebody to come in and say, we know there's this new king, Herod would see this automatically as a huge, massive threat. Especially, especially because of the language being used that he's the king of the Jews. Because the implication that someone within this, this community of, of the Jewish people, the people who were enslaved, is going to rise up and somehow challenge his power and challenge his authority? To Herod, that's like, no, no way. I'm in charge here. 
Nobody gets to come in and take my power from me. This is the first reaction um, that many of us have to the idea that God is with us, that God's coming in, that God, because God comes in and God comes in as a king, as a ruler. Jesus is our, our king come to earth. And for many of us, for many of us, the idea that somebody would come in and want to be king in our lives or king over us or have authority over us, we see that as a huge threat, a huge threat, which is how Herod responded. We, um, we don't want extra authority. This is just the way we're naturally bent. It's also the way our culture teaches us and trains us. We are perfectly happy. In fact, we, most of us, desire strongly to be in control and to be in charge of our own lives. The idea of somebody else telling us what to do goes so hard against everything that we believe we should be in our lives. Do you get what, like, like our culture, what is our culture like? One of the major huge values that we enshrine above all others in our culture is individualism. We have to have the right to do what we want to do. You have to be yourself. That the worst thing you can do is to follow others. The best thing you can do is to blaze your own trail, be an individual, be yourself, follow your heart. And this is what we believe. And so the idea, the idea that we would in some way welcome someone to come in and have authority over us is totally ridiculous. It goes against everything we've been taught our entire lives. Even, even within Christianity. As we hear the story of, of the gospel and we hear of the grace of God and we understand that Christ came to save us from our sins, to rescue us, to forgive us, and we love that idea. But even then, most of us who are Christians, still push back at the idea that the God who saves us is also the God who will lead us. That, the, that the, the Christ who is our Savior is also going to be our Lord. That in addition to knowing him and loving him, that we also should obey him. And we push back against that. Because the idea for any of us, believer, unbeliever alike, the idea that we have to follow or submit to someone else just rubs us so hard. The problem is, the problem is, the idea that we're going to rule ourselves, that we're going to be our own king, that nobody else is going to come in and tell us what to do, that we're going to be totally and completely independent, that idea, it just, it doesn't work. As much as we want to, in our lives, be the ones in charge, all of us, all of us are controlled by something. All of us are controlled by something or, or by someone. Whether it's an external force, and we recognize that we're following that person or that leader, or it's within ourselves, we think we're controlled by ourselves. All of us are controlled by something. When we think 
or when we're trying to be the ones in charge, we are controlled by that idea, by holding on to that power, by the idea that if I'm the one in charge and I don't want anybody else to tell me what I'm going to do or what's going to happen in my life, that the impulse to protect that, to keep ourselves in charge, drives us and controls us and leads us to do almost anything to protect our control, to protect our own, to use, if you don't mind, to use kind of a, uh, at this point it's become kind of a theological term, it didn't used to be, but the word, the word sovereignty, which just used to mean, you know, a king was sovereign, he was in control of everything, and we see theologically throughout the Bible that God is sovereign over everything, he's in control of everything, but most of us, most of us would prefer, would like to believe that we're sovereign over our own lives, And when anything threatens our own sovereignty, we go nuts. Look at what Herod did. Look at what it led to for Herod. He thought he was in control. By all rights, he was legally in control. He was the king. He's introduced as the king. And yet, and yet, when someone, and think about this, that someone is a baby. When a baby threatens his perceived sovereignty, look at how he responds. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. The word troubled there might be a little bit weak of a translation. The original word carries more of an implication or more of a meaning of he was terrified. He was deeply disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him, and I love the all Jerusalem with him because, look, the people of Jerusalem didn't care that Herod's rule was being threatened because they really loved Herod. Herod was an awful, horrible, cruel dictator. They were troubled because he was upset. (laughs) And when a dictator gets upset, the people who are under him, they get troubled too, right? So it it leads him to this this, um, incredible and difficult fear. And the first emotion that floods into Herod's heart when he hears about another king is a fear. Someone is going to try to take over. And so what does he do about it? Well, he goes and he gets more information about what's going on. He assembles the chief priests together. He tries to figure out what's going on here. They explain to him that there were prophecies in the past that said that at some point a king was going to come. And that based on their prophecies, the ancient um, Jewish prophecies, here's where we think it's going to happen. And Herod, hearing this, he brings the wise men back. And it says he brings them back secretly. And he found out from them what time this star had appeared. He's getting information. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now we know, and as we read on, Um, through the passage, but even just knowing what we know about Herod, he's totally lying here. Herod has no intention of worshiping this other king. Herod's whole goal is to preserve his own reign. So not only does this threat to his sovereignty lead him to fear, but it leads him to manipulation. And this is where we go in our own hearts as well, right? When you see your rule, your control of your little kingdom or your little universe being threatened, you get afraid and then you get manipulative. And you'll do whatever you can and you'll say whatever you have to say 
to other people to try to get them to go along to keep you in your rightful place in charge of your life. And you will use relationships, manipulate relationships to make other people do what you want to make sure that you're getting things going your way. For Herod, though, it doesn't stop there. I want you to skip down. Because the wise men go, and we'll come back and and talk about this in a minute, but they go and they find the baby, and they worship him, but then God supernaturally intervenes. He tells them not to go back. And so Herod, verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men because they don't come back, he became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. That this leads him not just to fear and not just to manipulation, but eventually to homicide. That he is so terrified by the idea that someone is going to unseat him from his throne, that he murders, that he... he cre- He commits a genocide of the babies in this region just to make sure that the threat is wiped out. Now, this is where you push back and you say, all right, yes, I want to be in control in my life. I understand that. And yes, there are times when that leads me to do things that I don't like. And maybe I get dishonest. Maybe I get a little bit cruel, but I've never killed anybody. I haven't wiped out scores of young babies to protect my control of my life. That's fair enough. But the point is this. The point is that our sin, our desire, our grasp of our control in our lives always, always leads us farther than we would want to go, deeper down a trail than we ever thought we could go, It can, and I I would assume, if we talk to the vast majority of people who have killed someone, that most of them never thought they would be capable of that. But even at that, even at that, because of, you know, our cultural upbringing and whatever it is that keeps us from doing that, there's still death often that's associated with our desire to control our lives. Now, it might not be a physical death. It could be the death of a relationship. How many of us have lost a friend, have lost our relationship with with a family member, with a spouse, with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, because we could not handle the fact that we felt threatened in our control of our lives? Because we didn't want to submit to what someone else was telling us, and specifically, specifically, what I'm talking about here is we didn't want to submit to what God was telling us we should do in our lives. And because of that, because we're scrambling so hard to keep control of our lives, to keep that thing that was so important to us, that it, it spread out and it impacted and it affected and it hurt people around us. People who had nothing to do with the situation. These babies had, had no impact on Herod. They were no threat to him. 
But because of his fear and his anxiety and his stress and his manic desire to keep control of his life, he ends up hurting so many other people. How many times has this happened to us? That we, because we've tried so hard to hold on to what we think is our control of our lives, and we end up hurting other people. And, if that weren't bad enough, the really sad part about this is, it's all for naught. I mean, it's totally pointless. Herod kills all these people. He lies, he manipulates, he murders. And I want you to look down at verse 19. But when Herod died, when Herod died, he did all this to be in control. He had to make sure he stayed the king. This was his region. Nobody was going to threaten his reign over this. And then he died. He wiped out these innocent children just to make sure that nobody else became the king. And then he died. And verse 22, this is talking about Joseph, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod. Somebody else became the king. Herod did all this horrible, awful, unspeakable things to remain king. And, and, and I would say eventually, but not even that long. Jesus is still a child This is within a short span of time. Everything that Herod did to keep control, he still died, and somebody else became the king. We spend so much time in our lives fighting so hard to be in control. And ultimately, it's pointless. And I don't mean this, listen, 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 listen. I don't mean this to sound like um, extremely fatalistic or depressing or anything like that. That's not my point, okay? My point is, we waste so much time and so much emotional energy and so much stress and so much anxiety trying to control our lives. And just think about that. Think about all that stress, all that heaviness that weighs on you because you feel like you have to be in charge of everything. Think about how much time you spend worrying about getting things just right, about making sure that things go just the way you want them to go. Think about all the the pain and the anger that you send out towards anybody who threatens your world existing and happening in the way you want it to happen. And it's pointless. There's a God who's in control of the universe. And you can try to become the one who's in charge, but you can't stop him. No matter what you do. As we read through this story, everything Herod did, God, unsurprisingly, was ahead of him. 
When Herod wipes out all the children, Jesus wasn't even there. Verse 13, now when they had departed, the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. God's in control. He's going to make happen what he's going to make happen. Now again, I don't say that so that you just walk around going like, well, what does it matter then? Who cares? I can't do anything. God's going to do what he's going to do. I say that because the point is to spend so much time and so much stress and so much anxiety and to hurt so many people trying to control every last aspect of your life, it doesn't work. And yet we do. I mean, we just do. We're so controlled by the idea that we want to be in charge. But, but it doesn't have to be that way. Because the idea that God has come down and God is with us, and he's come to be with us, and he's come to free us from those very fears, from that very idea that we have to be the ones in control, could do the exact opposite. And there's a second group of people that we see in this passage, and I want you to see how they responded to this, because it's kind of the opposite. This is a group of people that we refer to um, by a couple of different phrases or a, different, a couple of different names. Um, if you're looking at the ESV, uh, the English Standard Version translation, it refers to them as the wise men. Um, the original word is magi, and you may have heard the word magi before. Um, these were probably, if we understand it correctly, based on it says they came from the east and the use of the word magi, makes us think that these were probably um, prophets from a different religion, from an eastern religion. Um, These were like holy men, or actually the word magi leads to our word magician. Okay, so these were scholars, magicians, if you want to use that word. Um, They were not, and I I really kind of wanted this to be true. As I was studying this today, uh, this week, and I was looking at this passage, and I was thinking about that Christmas carol, We Three Kings. You know that song? And I was like, oh, they were kings, and Herod's a king, and Jesus is the king, and then they're kings, and it would have been this beautiful, perf- perfect parallelism, all the different kings in this passage. So I looked, and they're not kings at all. Like, the guy wrote that song. Um, it was an American guy. He was from, like, uh, Philadelphia or something, and he wrote We Three Kings. And I, I don't know. I loved that song when I was a kid. Now it's ruined to me forever. Um, we Three Magi doesn't have the same rhythm. But um, they were probably important. They were not probably kings. But anyway, so the Magi were scholars. They were, as the Bible refers to them, wise men in the sense that they looked and they had understood, and probably we, as we look at this, probably what happened, um, without going too much into the weeds on this one, there was, in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Balaam, um, who was not actually a Jewish prophet, he was a prophet from another um, country, but long story, complicated story, God actually, and he wasn't a good man, he was actually a really bad guy, but God gave him true prophecies, um, and another king had asked him to curse the children of Israel, 
and he tried to and he couldn't because God, again, God does what God wants to do and he forced him to give good prophecies. And one of the prophecies he gave involved a star rising and to become the king of Judah and he would have to be a star and he would have a scepter. So basically this star would become, would show this king. And so these wise men from the east had heard this prophecy and they saw this star and there was something supernatural about this star that told them this is that prophecy. This is what that guy was talking about. This is that king that was prophesied so many hundreds of years ago. And so they said, we want to go figure out what's going on with this. And they weren't Jews themselves. They weren't seeing this and saying, this is the guy who's supposed to be our king because he's the king of of Judah. But it wasn't even that. It was just, this is, at first, this is fascinating and it seems like an answer to this prophecy that we've heard. And so they just wanted to go and see what it was. The end result, as we work through this, what we're going to see is the end result, and this is our second possible reaction to the idea of God being with us, is that what started out as a curiosity to them ended with all-out worship. That their hearts were, instead of being driven to fear and instead of being threatened, their hearts were opened and enlarged and enlivened with worship. So let's talk real quickly about the word worship because we have to understand what it means to figure out what's going on with these um, wise men. Worship, worship is when we point to something or someone else and we give it value and we say that it is better or it is higher or it is more worthy than us. That's what worship is. And we praise it, we give it adoration, we love it, we talk about it. Sometimes we even sing about it. Because this thing fills us with so much awe and so much joy and so much wonder. And it infects us emotionally. And its triumphs become our triumphs. And its defeats become our defeats. And we rise and fall and we laugh and we cry. And all those things based on what happens to this something else. That's worship. And when our lives become so obsessed with and amazed with and in awe with the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of something else or someone else, we say that we are worshiping that thing or that person. And that's what we see happen to the wise men here. Now, it doesn't start that way, but that's how it ends. All of us, all of us were created with the capacity and the desire to worship something. All of us were born with this understanding because God created us in this way that there's something that deserves our praise and our adoration. And we talk about all of us being controlled by something. All of us are controlled by something because we're made to be controlled by something because we're made to worship something. And what we worship, we are controlled by. And so the question for all of us is not, will you worship? The question is, what will you worship And even in this passage, Herod was worshiping. He just was worshiping himself. He had placed himself at the forefront and at the pinnacle of everything. And he was controlled by how amazing and how wonderful and how awesome he was. And he wanted to spend his life making sure that other people would see how amazing and awesome and wonderful he was. He was worshiping. The problem was he was worshiping a really, really empty Uh, and wrong thing. The Magi, however, came and they saw the star, and 
they're looking and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And I want you to see what happens um, starting in verse number 9. After listening to the king. So this was after Herod told them, go find him. Tell me where he is. They went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, again, the language here isn't crystal clear as to exactly what's going on, but the implication is very clear. Something extremely strange was going on with this star. This was not a normal star. There was something supernatural. That the star was in some way, um, in some way bigger or brighter or somehow drew their attention that something about this star made them notice this is different, and that it did something, that it somehow, in the language here, moved in some way that stars don't normally move, that it indicated to them, that it pointed them to a specific place in a way that stars don't normally do. And their reaction to this was to understand there's something different going on here. And it leads them to the place where Jesus is. And look at the language in verse 10, because this is fascinating. Um, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now you understand that when Matthew wrote this gospel down and he recorded how the Magi responded to seeing the star, he could have said, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced. But that wasn't quite enough to capture their reaction. He could have said they rejoiced exceedingly. But that wasn't quite enough to capture their reaction. So he could have said they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. But that wasn't quite enough. Do you get this? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is like a superfluous description of how amazingly in awe, how uh, over the top obsessively, they started worshiping because what happened was so amazing and so incredible and so life-changing to them that it just opened up their hearts to worship in this amazing and incredible way. They went nuts. They went crazy. They weren't like, cool, the star. They like, they, whoa, they freaked out to a point that Matthew has to use four different words to describe how over the top their worship was. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down. You don't bow down to a baby. You only bow down to some. You don't bow down to anybody, okay? Let's be honest, right? You don't bow down to anybody. The only time you would bow down to somebody is if it was someone who was of such higher rank and higher position that you had to humble yourself, that you had to show humility because they were so much above you. And that's how the Magi responded when they saw Jesus. Because they understood that they were in the presence of God with us. Now they started out just curious. They'd heard this prophecy, they saw the star, They decided to invest some time. They came from pretty far, it sounds like. So they put some effort into trying to figure out what's going on with this whole thing. But the more they dug into it, 
And the further they went and the deeper they got, the more they saw amazing and miraculous and supernatural things to the point that when they actually met Jesus, they were so filled with awe that they fell down in worship. When God displayed his power, and he displayed it through this star, but he also displayed it through this baby. Both the the majesty and the power of this brilliant, supernatural, celestial display, and the frailty of a weak human baby. And when the wise men saw that, They were so overcome that they didn't, listen, they didn't choose, they didn't decide, they didn't have a conference and make a decision. They just were so overcome that their natural reaction was to fall down. Not even, and it doesn't even say they bowed down, it says they fell down. Just natural uncontrolled, not of their own volition. They just fell down and worshipped him. When God displays his glory to us, when we truly grasp who God is and what he has done, our natural reaction, our natural reaction, Not a choice, not we have to, not we force ourselves to. Our natural reaction is to worship. Is to be humbled, to be blown away, to see how low we are and how great and high he is. So here's the question, here's the question. I haven't ever seen like a magic star. And I didn't get to see physical, real, here at the time, baby Jesus. Okay? I've seen a lot of little statues of him around this time of year, but they're, I mean, they're statues, right? I got a tree, I, I've got a, a, a star on the top of my Christmas tree, but it's not the same thing, right? I didn't get to see this stuff actually happen. So, has God actually displayed his glory to us? Or was this something that was only possible and only true for people who were alive at this point, at this time in history? The truth is, and the good news is, that God has displayed his glory to us. And he's displayed his glory to us through the good news of Jesus Christ. Through his word, in the scriptures, and through the news of what Jesus did, through the gospel, that Christ came. And he came as this frail human. But even as a frail human, he didn't have what we as frail and broken humans have, which is sin within us. He lived a life of no sin. He lived a perfect life. The life all of us would have, wish we could have lived, he did. But then in his perfection, he allowed himself to be tortured and brutally murdered to take the punishment that we deserve, that we deserve for our sin. He took it on himself. And then he rose again, 
to defeat death, to show that he has ultimate power and glory and majesty greater than any human ability. That he could do the thing nobody else could do, that you can't do, that I can't do. Herod couldn't do it. Herod did everything he could to keep his power, but the one thing he could not defeat was death. And Jesus, this little baby, he did. And rising in majesty and in glory, Jesus ascended back into heaven where he lives now, where he reigns supreme with all sovereignty over the earth. And he has displayed to us through that, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, has displayed to us his glory. And if we, if we will look into that, if we will lean into that idea, if we will ask the questions about what that means, if we will spend time focusing on those truths, we will move beyond curious onlookers, and we will be moved out of our natural tendency towards self-protection if we truly lean into those truths about God, about Jesus, if we believe that gospel is true, then he will transform our hearts. And he will lead us to worship him. And we will be freed from this fear and anxiety of having to control everything in our lives because when we understand and we believe that he is God and he is king and he is sovereign, then we can trust in him. And our natural response, our natural response, not forced, not manipulated, but our natural response will be to fall down and to worship him. So the question today, the question today is when you think about God, and when you think about the prospect of God being with us, and you think about the idea of God wanting to control your life, Where does that lead your heart? Do you push back in fear and anxiety? Do you say, I need to be in control? Or do you fall down in worship? Obedience and worship, listen, obedience and worship, much, much more, and so this is why I keep saying, this is is a diagnostic for our heart. I just want to raise this question for you today. I just want you to think about this, because to say, to say, to come out of this and to say, so what we should do then is we should, we ought to, we need to try harder, work harder, put our nose to the grindstone, be more disciplined in worshiping. That's not worship. Worship and obedience are both natural outcomes of a heart that is exploded by the truth and the beauty and the, the, the majesty of who God truly is. The question is not whether or not you're going to obey God's rule. God's sovereign. You can try, you can attempt, you can try to live your life in your own way, do what you want to do. It will be as pointless as it was for Herod. God is sovereign. That's not the question. The question is, the question is, do you, will you, Open your eyes to see the glory of God in the gospel. 
And as we go through this Christmas season, but beyond, beyond, we always say these things that during Christmas time, let's focus on the real meaning of Christmas and that kind of stuff. Let's, let's move beyond that. In life, will you open your eyes to see who God is and what he has done and allow that to free you from the tyranny of your own self-rule and open you up to worship him. We're going to pray together. We're going to have a time of communion. I'm going to put some, uh, sorry, we're going to pray together. I'm going to put some reflection questions up on the screen to think through these questions and to ask yourself, where is your heart going? Is it possible, is it possible that maybe you need to open your eyes and spend more time and focus more attention on who God is and what he's done and allow that to enter in and infect your heart in such a way that it opens you up to worship him in a greater way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, you are amazing. You are wonderful. You are so much above us. We are so weak and worthless, and yet, and yet you and your love came down. You became a God with us. We didn't deserve it. There was nothing in us that ever would have called that forth, and yet you came to be with us. Thank you. How crazy it is for us to want to rule our own lives when you, the God who created this universe, loves us so much and wants the best for us and we would push back against that. God, we pray that this morning you would again open our eyes even wider to even more clearly hear from you, to see you, to understand who you are and what you've done. We pray that that would change us that your gospel would transform our lives and that we would live lives of worship to you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.